Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. and welcome to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Pardon me this week as I battle a bit of a cold. So a couple of quick orders of business before we begin. First, I'd like to welcome two new Newshound tier patrons to my fold at patreon.com slash mostnotorious. They are Matt, who is actually a good friend of mine here in the Twin Cities, and also Katie from Texas. Thank you so much for your support on Patreon. It means a great deal to me. And for those of you in Minnesota in June, I am guiding a special bootleg and brewery tour in St. Paul on the afternoon of Saturday, June 15th. The saintly city has had a long tradition of German beer brewing, as well as Prohibition-era-related murder and mayhem Lots of history, lots to talk about. So we'll explore the sites, and I'll tell those stories on this special one-time motor coach tour. You can email me at erivenous at yahoo.com for more details, or go to Most Notorious and click Tours, or just send me a wire from there. All right, on with the show. I'm very pleased to have as my guest today, Eric Jagger author, medieval literature specialist, literary critic, and English professor at the University of California, Los Angeles. He is here to chat about his book, The Last Duel, a true story of crime, scandal, and trial by combat in medieval France. So glad to have you on. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. So before we get started, I feel the need to lead with a disclaimer. I'm not very good at pronouncing French names, (laughs) (laughs) and I'm going to clear that up immediately. (laughs) So my apologies if I massacre someone's identity in this interview. (laughs) But let me start by asking you this. Um, When did the idea first occur to you to write a book about this subject? Well, I was living in New York, teaching at Columbia University, and uh, I happened to pick up, while doing lots of other things, teaching us and and working on other research, I just happened to pick up a medieval chronicle, a rather famous one, by this uh, 
fellow named uh, Jean Froissart, who he sounds French, but um, he came from a part of Europe that is now now Belgium. Of course, it wasn't Belgium at the time. It was Flanders. And uh, he wrote in French, and he wrote this sort of panoramic chronicle about French and European events in the later 14th, early 15th century. It sort of spanned much of the Hundred Years' War. It uh, told about all sorts of crises and problems in, in the French court. And I just happened to stumble over a, a five- or six-page chapter in the middle of this about this amazing duel. And uh, it's the duel of Jean de Carouge and Jacques Legree that took place in 1386 over this case of alleged rape. And uh, I was, read it with fascination and uh, began to wonder um, if you know, there was more about the story than just these five or six pages. And so I did some library research and found that uh, there were other accounts that records of the case survived. And, you know, I went looking for a book about it, thinking there must be somebody must have written a book about this whole thing. But apparently, despite all the surviving evidence and the fact that it was very controversial at the time and had been quite famous down the centuries, no one had actually written a full-length treatment. So I realized that if I wanted that, I might have to write it myself. So that was really the, the genesis of it, finding the story, getting excited about it, doing some research, and realizing there was probably a lot more to uncover. Yeah, it's a really interesting time period. You are obviously an expert in it. I don't think I've ever done an episode either about a crime as old as this one. I'm hoping you can start by setting the scene for us. Could you talk about medieval France in the 14th century, where French people were culturally, politically in this era? Sure. France had become really the richest, it was one of the largest kingdoms in Europe at the time, and it had become very wealthy and populous. Uh, by, you know, 1350 or so, but uh, uh, various problems were starting to, to sort of creep into the picture. One was the fact that the English uh, king in the 1330s had claimed the French crown as a result of a huge genealogical dispute uh, based on the intermarried royal houses of, of England and France. So there was this English claim on the throne of France that had resulted in an invasion uh, and a huge battle in 1346, the Battle of Crecy, and then 10 years later, the Battle of Poitiers, 1356, when the, the, the English actually captured the French king and took him to London uh, as a hostage, requiring the French to pay an exorbitant ransom of something like uh, just millions and millions of dollars in today's currency. Uh, the plague had swept through France as it had swept through Europe in the late 1340s, decimating in fact, more than decimating, killing up to a third of the population uh, in places. And uh, and then the royal house of France itself was in crisis, even once they got their king back. And um, his heir, Charles V, came to the throne. He died, leaving a very young heir in 1380. This was Charles VI, who would, in fact, a little older and, and a few years later, supervise or preside over this duel. He was only 10 or 11 when he came to the throne, which meant that his uncles were basically in charge and running the kingdom uh, for him in a kind of regency. And so you have the English attack, you have this very young king, you have a population that's often on the edge of starvation and very restive, and uh, often there have been 
peasant revolts in this part of that part of France. So a lot of uh, disorder in that respect. And great nobles vying for power at court, sort of over the head of this very young king. So it's um, it's going to get worse, too, for France. <laughs> it's, there's, there will be an assassination in the royal house. The king will, in fact, go mad by the turn of the century. And I mean, it just it gets worse and worse. So who are the central figures in this story? Okay, the central figures are really three. You have uh, Jean de Carouge, who is a, a Norman knight uh, from a very old and respected family, although by 1380 or so, not particularly wealthy. There are some money concerns. And he has uh, inherited uh, a number of fiefs or pieces of land with castles and the like from his family and is pretty well established in 1380, uh, which is when he marries uh, Marguerite, a much younger woman, probably reputedly very virtuous, very beautiful, who comes from a fairly wealthy family herself, and an old family too. These are the the name Carouge and the name Thibouville. You can still see them on maps of Paris or maps of France today, maps of Normandy. Very old families whose names were given to to regions or pieces of land. Uh, so those those two families are joined in marriage. Uh, Jean de Carouge and, and Marguerite de Thibouville marry around 1380, and by this time Carouge knows and is quite close to a fellow courtier named Jacques Legree, who's in the same court in Normandy. It's the court of Count Pierre Valençon at Argentan. And they are fellow courtiers. They are both squires at this time and subject to their lord's call-ups for military service and, and other sorts of duties. Now, Legree unlike Carouge and, and Marguerite de Thibouville, are fr- is from a much uh, newer family, new money, you might say, and uh, they're not nearly as uh, uh, well-established in the Norman uh, nobility, but they have a lot of money. They are nouveau riche, if you like, and Count Pierre uh, values Jacques Legree in his court much more than he values Carouge because Legree, among other things, provides him with ready cash, is a kind of banker even, uh, to Count Pierre. Furthermore, Legree is educated. He can read and write and uh, has administrative, you know, offers administrative uh, skills to Count Pierre as well. So what happens after about 1380 when the marriage uh, of Jean de Carouge and uh, Marguerite takes place is a sort of gradual cooling of the friendship between Carouge and Legree. And Carouge has some financial squabbles with Count Pierre, right? There is some land that he covets, land he believes belongs to him, and he's not able to get it. And this is a grievance that causes some conflict. Exactly. What what's it it happens in two or three stages. First with a with a dispute over a piece of land that seems to flare up quite close to the time that Jean de Carouge marries Marguerite. Uh, it's a piece of land that her father had owned that had been sold by her father to Count Pierre and then given as a gift to Jacques Legree, who was gradually becoming a, a sort of rival in terms of patronage and preferment at court to Carouge. So Legree gets this piece of land, and that makes Carouge 
angry or jealous or you know un- unhappy to say the least. And then not long after that, uh, there is uh, well, Carouge loses his father. Jean de Carouge's father is the important is the captain of an important fort at a place called Belém, and. Carouge reasonably expects to inherit this post when his father dies around 1382, but he does not. And uh, it does not go to Legree, but it goes to someone else. And uh, Carouge takes umbrage at this. And then there's a further dispute about some land that Carouge tries to buy a year or two later. Uh, but it's encumbered land, and Count Pierre has the right to prevent the sale of it, and he does exactly that. So by 13. 83 or 84, Carouge has had several setbacks at court, which has which have alienated him uh, to some extent from his lord, but also from his former friend uh, Legree, and so the the situation is is worsening as a result. And Marguerite has an interesting lineage, doesn't she? She's the daughter of a treasonous knight. Yes, this is a very interesting thing about Marguerite. For all her virtues and qualities uh, that she brought to this marriage, she did have a sort of checkered past because of her family, not anything that she had done. But her father, uh, Robert de Thibouville, came from his own noble line of, of ancient Norman nobles. But back in the middle of the century, when uh, the English had been uh, attacking and winning these victories, and also at this time there were rival claimants for the French throne, other than the French king or the English king himself. Robert had sided, along with many other Norman nobles, with a rebel uh, and rival claimant to the throne, and uh, he was, as a result, imprisoned for a couple of years. And uh, this was a quite a, a stain on the family, although he was pardoned rather than being executed perhaps because so many Norman nobles had rebelled and it would have been impossible to, to you know, you would have gotten rid of a great deal of the Norman nobility if, if, if a severe reprisal had taken place. So the king forgave quite a few, we're talking hundreds of these uh, rebels, but they all, as a result, have a kind of uh, uh, cloud over their heads. And when Marguerite marries Jean, Count Pierre, Jean's overlord would have been well aware of this, especially because he had been a hostage in England for a year or two during a period of the Hundred Years' War, and so he would have perhaps regarded Jean's marriage to this daughter of a former traitor as a kind of uh, affront of some kind. So you write that Carouge's position in court continues to decline while degrees fortunes rise. And the conflict continues between them until a friend at a party or some kind of celebration, I can't remember exactly what, invites them both in an effort to get them to make peace with each other. And there is an uncomfortable moment when Carouge asks Marguerite to kiss Legree on the mouth. That's right. What happens, yes, exactly. They're, they're both invited to a kind of Christmas time celebration that has to do at least nominally with the birth of a, a friend's child and the the fact that his wife the friend's wife survived the childbirth which was you know a very dangerous time for women in the middle ages a lot of women did die in childbirth but it was to celebrate the birth of the child the the rising of the the wife from childbed as they put it and also the baptism 
of this child. And so there was this party around Christmas, it appears, in 1384, when Legree and Carouge were both present, along with uh, Carouge's wife, Marguerite. And uh, it could have, I suppose, turned into a, a fresh spat between the men. But in fact, it appears they had a friendly meeting, and Carouge actually instructed his wife, who uh, Marguerite, who was meeting Legree this on this occasion for the very first time, uh, to kiss Legree as a sign of the renewed friendship and the peace between the two men. So to all appearances, the, the two men made up and reconciled at this point by uh, in late in 1384, after several years of, of a falling out. So it's not long after this that Carouge basically puts all his eggs in one basket, right? He mounts up and heads to Scotland for war, hoping to make a fortune. That's right, and that's that's a, a, a just the right way to put it, because one of the reasons men went to war in the Middle Ages, and, and one of the reasons many men meant to, went to war, was to enrich themselves. It was it was seen as a almost a get-rich-quick scheme if you survived. <laughs> and so many knights and squires would eagerly join campaigns, whether royal campaigns or, or others, in order to capture loot on the battlefield, uh, but especially to take prisoners, to take wealthy prisoners who could be held for ransom, which is exactly what England had done with the French king decades earlier, uh, extorted a huge amount of money from, from the French coffers, because they had this most valuable hostage of all, the king. So Carouge goes off on this royal campaign uh, to Scotland, and the purpose of this is to, you know, the French have been attacked on their own turf for decades by the English, and sort of to reverse the tables, to turn the tables on the English and attack them on their ground. But from the, from the, from the top, from Scotland, where they're perhaps least expecting an attack. And so they ally with the Scots, the French do, and they have this big expedition under a, a famous uh, military leader, and Carouge goes sailing off to Scotland for the uh, better part of a year with this uh, military expedition and hopes to enrich himself as a result. So in the meantime, Legree, um, reading your book, it's, it's hard to know what Legree's motivation is, <laughs> lust or revenge, but he begins to covet Carouge's wife and eventually enlists one of his servants, right, to help him get to Marguerite and tries to time it so she's alone. That's right. Um, what happens is Carouge comes back from his campaign, and in the meantime, has left his, during, during his absence, he's left Marguerite at her father's castle. Uh, uh, he, you know, for whatever reason, maybe Marguerite's own uh, preferences, uh, he takes her further north in Normandy to uh, leave her with her father at the family estate, and possibly, I mean, possibly Carouge doesn't trust her, or he wants simply to assure her safety. The motivation isn't really clear, but she's there while he's gone. But when he comes back, he takes her uh, sort of at, again at Christmas time. But this is um, this is a year later. This is Christmas of 1385, turning into the year 1386, uh, that he takes her to visit his uh, mother, that is Jean de Carouge's mother, at a very small feudal estate where she has retired uh, from her much more, you know, sort of prominent social life when she was the the grand lady of the the castle, Belém, that her husband had uh, been captain of for so many years. So she's at this rather small 
estate known as Kapomeniel, uh up in sort of uh, to the north. And Jean de Carouge goes off to with his wife, uh, Marguerite, to visit his mother there around Christmas time. But he leaves his wife at Kapomeniel to go off to Paris for about a week would be a round trip of about a week to collect his military pay or to deal with other business affairs. It's not entirely clear, but he goes off on business to do this and passes through the town of Argenton on his way to Paris, which is the which is where Count Pierre, his overlord, keeps court. And it's reported in the uh, official legal case that was written up later that at Argenton, Jean de Carouge encounters Jacques Legree and told various people, including Legree, about his trip to Paris and may have let slip that his wife was now staying not too far away at the home of um, Jean de Carouge's mother. Her name is Nicole. And that's when Legree seems to have started his machinations. And I may have jumped ahead a little too fast on this. (laughs) Carouge uh, did come home from war. He didn't do as well as he hoped he would have done financially. No, no. He did not seem to have struck it rich, as he no doubt hoped. Uh, in fact, the, uh, the fact that he went off to Paris to collect his military pay suggests that he was very, very much in need of money at the time. Uh, he was also quite ill, and the fact that he went off to Paris with a fever that he's reported to have come back from Scotland with suggests a kind of desperation. Uh, the one thing he got out of Scotland, the campaign there, was a knighthood. He was apparently uh, dubbed a knight during the campaign because the, the record shows him going off as a squire but coming back as a chevalier. And so that's the one thing he got out of it. And he may even have, uh, being a sort of jealous, irascible person who kept a grudge for many years, but seemingly may have sort of thrown that in the face of the court at Argenton when he got to, when he stopped there on his way to Paris. It's again that's speculation, but I know if he decided that as a knight he now carried more weight, that may have even provoked Legree. We don't know. We'll return after a few brief moments. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day seventeen seventy six, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? 
Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show has examined weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906 when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Reva Steed's Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. We're back once more. So he does come back as a seasoned fighter. He's in his late 40s, right? That's right. He's probably close to 50 by this time, yep. How old is Legree? About the same age. They're, they're roughly the same age. Okay. Back to where we left off with Marguerite. She was left by herself, and the man that knocks on her door is Adam Lavelle? Yes. Okay, Adam Lavelle is an associate of Jacques Legree's. So Marguerite is, just to set the stage again, Marguerite is at her mother-in-law's small chateau, uh, which is not a very big place necessarily, not necessarily very well guarded, and um, on a, a certain January morning, it's probably January 18, uh, Nicole, her mother-in-law, goes off to a town about six miles away, apparently to deal with some legal business. She's been called away. She's literally been summoned to court to deal with some squabble with a tenant or, or something of that sort. And she takes with her just about all the servants. Uh, it says it, it, the, the court record says that only one maidservant was left behind with Marguerite. And so she is pretty much alone, uh, nearly alone at this uh, place uh, on this critical day. And there is a, a visit, an unexpected visit from a man named Adam Louvelle, who I'm quite sure from research I did had once served under Jean de Carouge, but seems to have switched over to the, to the entourage of Jacques Legree at some point and now is, is working for him or is, is, is uh, collaborating with him. Uh, and he appears at this lonely old feudal estate on that morning saying that um, he is there to ask for a loan, of all things, from Jean de Carouge. Well, Marguerite is pretty surprised by this. First of all, her husband is gone. He's in Paris trying to collect his own military pay. She knows nothing about this loan and is pretty nonplussed by all this. But hardly has Adam Louvel asked for this uh, extent, it's actually an extension on a loan that he's already taken from Carouge. Uh, he says that he carries greetings from Jacques Legree, who 
is very much desirous of speaking with Marguerite and thinks very highly of her and other flattery of this sort. And, and Marguerite says, well, uh, I have no interest in speaking to Jacques Legree. And, uh, and then suddenly Legree appears. And so both men are now in the sort of entryway or uh, uh, the, near the door of this, this chateau, and they force their way in. And uh, Legree begins to, to flatter and cajole Marguerite, um, saying that he loves her and will do anything for her, and things of that nature. And I think in your book you call Lavelle Legree's procurer. They had this game that they played. There's some evidence that Le, that Legree employed uh, Lavelle as a procurer for a sort of whole one, once upon a time, it would have been called womanizing. I'm not sure what the word is today, but he, Legree has, is reputed to have seduced quite a few women and had a, had a, had a record, you might say, of this. And Louvelle seems to have been, uh, involved in, as a procurer or some kind of go-between in these affairs. So things don't go the way Legree hopes they will. He seems to have an expectation that he will get what he wants, uh, wouldn't you say? And, and it just doesn't happen that way. By all accounts, Marguerite is a very devoted wife to her husband and refuses all advances. That's right. The, what comes through in the, the record and the testimony later given in court is, is her absolute refusal to go along with anything. She, she tells him, you know, she tells Legree she doesn't want to hear any of this. Uh, she wants them to leave. Uh, she uh, says that um, she doesn't want to hear any of this flattery, and so it turns violent. Uh, Legree, according to her testimony, grabs her by the wrist and makes her sit down on this bench, uh, which would be a kind of typical furnishing in that part of such a chateau, and insists that she go along with his wishes, and she refuses, and it becomes even more violent as the two men grab her and uh, carry her upstairs and uh, to a, a more secluded place in the house. Uh, we don't know anything about the where, whereabouts of this maidservant at this time, but um, in any case, it seems that these two men overpower her and carry her up a, a stairway to a bedroom, and Legree basically um, you know, uses that situation. I, what I wanted to say earlier was that I think he may have, as you, as you were suggesting yourself, arrived at the idea that he could seduce Marguerite, that she was vulnerable, that she might be willing, that um, the money problems her husband had might make her susceptible and so forth. But it, he finds that to be anything but the case. She's a very st- a virtuous woman. She's very strong-willed, and she's very defiant. And so these two men essentially overpower her physically. That was a really powerful punch in the book, Legree assumes he can have his way with her, but she fights so strongly, defends herself so well, that he has to call his cohort in to hold her down. That's right. Uh, But also, um, just to clarify, we only have a single account of what happened, and it is from her, right? We have have only one account of what happened in the events that occurred between Legree and Marguerite. We We have her account of that. And then we have Legree's alibi, which claims that he was nowhere even near this place for for that day or the entire week. Uh, so what we have is just her account of these particular events. And you're right, she she what she testified to in court was a battle royal on the staircase, 
uh, a battle royal in the in this bedroom upstairs. She even tries to uh, she when Jacques Legree bends down to unlace his boots, she apparently gets free and runs around the bed to another door in this room and tries to escape. But he catches her and throws her on the bed. And there's some implication that he even ties her down, that he has to call Louvel back into the room to help him hold her down. He's, according to her account, she, uh, he stuffs a cap, his, his, the cap he's been wearing while well, galloping up there, apparently, uh, on the road, stuffs that into her mouth to silence her, uh, because perhaps he's still concerned about uh, that maidservant or someone hearing, and subsequent to that, rapes her according to her account, and and then before leaving, tosses some coins to her uh, as if in payment for what he has taken from her. So, of course, she refuses the money and throws it back at him and even manages to vow that she will have justice uh, from her husband and his friends before Legree and Louvelle depart. So how was the crime of rape viewed in France at this time? Women had far fewer rights, right? That's right. Marguerite never would have been able to take this case to court without her husband's help and in complete um, cooperation with her. I mean, she could not even bring a case like this herself. He he had to bring the case. Uh, and in fact, she is to some extent viewed less as a person with rights than as property that's been damaged, which her husband then seeks address, a redress for in court. Uh, on the other hand, rape was very much uh, recognized as a serious crime. The notion of the Middle Ages as one as a time when rape was simply rampant or not taken seriously is a little bit exaggerated. It, it depended a lot on the social status of the victim and also the social status of the alleged perpetrator, and that really had a lot to do with it. So if uh, a noblewoman like Marguerite was raped, that was taken much more seriously than if some peasant woman in the fields uh, suffered the same fate. Um, and also, if the perpetrator, in this case a member of the nobility, was you know was uh, was of high status, that too was important. And even the, the in addition to that, the social class of the person made a difference. For example, scholars who have studied the court, the the adjudication of rape during this period in France, have found that a lot of the accused rapists were actually clerics, were from the church, and one incentive, if you will. Uh, for them uh, was perhaps the fact that they could get their cases tried in a church court rather than a secular court and get a much easier time of it in in the church courts than in the secular courts. Uh, So the fact that Legree was um, a a, a cleric and that he could, in a legal situation, claim benefit of clergy, as it was known, which allowed him to have his case undertaken in a church court, that may have figured into this uh, as well, um, in addition to to other factors. So to complicate matters, Marguerite had been childless for five years. They had attempted to have a child with no luck, and now she's suddenly pregnant. That's right. That's the that's the uh, the upshot of this. Now it's not clear at all whether it was you know the result of a pregnancy from uh, the, the pregnancy resulted from Jean de Carouge's return, and um, you know, returning to his wife after his campaign, or whether this was, because that's not too much, that's not too many weeks before uh, the alleged rape takes place in in mid to late January. So it's not clear at all 
who, whose child it was, but that would have been one of the uh, concerns to Jean and Marguerite as they decided what to do about the situation. Then Carouge has a council with his family, and he's just enraged. He believes his honor has been besmirched. How does he pursue justice through the French judicial system? Okay, well, the first thing he does is uh, when he gets back from Paris, Marguerite has been very careful not to tell anyone what's happened, including her mother-in-law. And she waits until Carouge is back and waits till the evening of that day, apparently, when they're about to go to bed. And they might have some privacy in this great house because all the servants have come back with um, with uh, Nicole, the mother-in-law, uh, Jean's mother. And so Marguerite tells Jean what has happened. And the chronicler makes it sound as if he maybe had a doubt or two. And so he tells his wife, well, if what you have told me is true, very well, I will pursue this, I will pursue justice. But if what you have told me is not true, we will never live together again as man and wife, something something to that effect. But he apparently does believe her, believes her account. And he calls a, a family council, which would have been a well-advised thing to do uh, to get the family support. Um, there's some evidence that Nicole de Carouge, uh, his mother, did not believe Marguerite when the news came out. But there is um, plenty of evidence that other relatives did. And uh, Jean de Carouge decides to take the case to the court of his overlord, which would have been the right legal procedure. You, you take a case like this to your overlord if you have a dispute with a fellow uh, courtier. And that's exactly what this is now. It's a dispute between Jean de Carouge and Jacques Legree, in which Carouge is saying, this man raped my wife, and I want legal redress. And it would have been up to Count Pierre then to call a hearing, which he did do, and to assemble his uh, advisors and clerics and other courtiers and to hear this case out. And that was scheduled, and it took place. But the remarkable thing about it is that Jean de Carouge and his wife, Marguerite, were not there. And this is one of those peculiar silences in the story. We just don't know why. Were they prevented from attending? Did they decide... Uh, not to attend because of some sense of danger. There, there are, there's evidence, uh, according to Foissart, the chronicler, uh, Count Pierre became so angry at Carouge for raising this dispute in the first place, as he saw it, that he would have had him killed, it says. And so possibly Jean and Marguerite did not feel safe traveling uh, to Count Pierre's court in order to attend this hearing. Uh, a third possibility is that they were calculating that they knew that Count Pierre would side with Legree and uh, declare Legree innocent, which is exactly what Count Pierre did. In fact, um, Foissart, the chronicler, adds that Count Pierre claimed that Marguerite had dreamt it all up, essentially claiming that she'd lied. And so it's possible that Carouge and his wife, Marguerite, knew that Pierre would, Count Pierre would would uh, decide this way, and that would actually be to their ultimate advantage because then, having received that unfavorable verdict, Carouge would have the right to appeal his case over the head of Count Pierre to Count Pierre's overlord, who happened to be the king. And that's exactly what uh, uh, 
Carouge decided to do. He made an appeal to, to the king. It's like appealing to the Supreme Court after, after the lower courts shoot you down, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. Very much like that. And this case really begins to capture the imaginations of the French people, yeah? It, it becomes quite sensational. By the time the king has heard the appeal, which would have been, would have been sometime in the spring, as far as one can estimate, the spring of 1386, by the time it's the case is taken to Paris, it's becoming well-known. It's becoming well-known in the royal court, among the French nobility. And by the time the duel will take place at the end of the year, uh, the, French, the chronicler Foisard says that the story had become known to the very uh, borders of the kingdom and even beyond. This is sort of national news, possibly international news by that time. What is trial by combat? What is a judicial duel? And, and how common was it in France at this time? Okay. A judicial duel is, is uh, I mean, it looks like, uh, I mean, it's often a fight to the death, depending on the nature of the crime. And in criminal courts, where it's a matter of rape or murder or treason, uh, it is a fight to the death. But there are also duels in civil courts over property disputes and things like that. And that is never deliberately a, a fight to the death. It's just a fight to victory, and the victory then decides the case. So there were various kinds of judicial duels. It's a fight uh, between two people. It's always, almost always two men, although there are cases in Europe of fights involving uh, women, uh, especially in Germany, it seems. But um, typically, it's two men of the nobility, although there were disputes between peasants that sometimes came to duels. And Technically, what the duel is, it, it looks like a blood sport, it looks like a spectacle, it, it has a lot of dimensions, it even has a religious dimension because priests were often present to hear the oaths sworn in advance by the combatants. But at its core, it's the testing of two oaths. Uh, just as in court today, you have two sides typically telling different stories, and the the the, the judge or the jury has to decide which story is true. In a judicial combat or a judicial tool or trial by combat, they're all the same thing. Uh, what you have is two combatants swearing opposite oaths uh, before, the, before the duel. So in this case, Jean de Carouge uh, would have sworn that uh, he was accusing Jacques Legree of having, in fact, raped his wife. And Jacques Legree would be swearing a counter oath that he was innocent and had no was not guilty at all of this this um this charge and then the duel would take place in order to tell or to decide which man which combatant was telling the truth and the idea was that god would assure a just outcome and that's why the one of the technical names for the trial by combat or the judicial duel at this time is the uh, judicium dei the, the the judgment of god literally in which god is thought to supervise the duel and assure a just outcome. Uh, now, the duel is a very old uh, custom in Europe. The, some of the earliest records go back to the 500s, the 6th century in Burgundy, and it seems to have been practiced throughout much of Europe, Scandinavia, Spain, Italy, Germany, France, and um, after the Normans conquered England in, the, in, the, in 1066, it also became common there as well. But it is dying out in France by the time of this particular duel in the late 13 hundreds. It's increasingly disused, increasingly hard to get a duel approved. 
there are various reasons for this. Uh, lawyers aren't so keen that this is a really good way to decide cases. And the king, uh, and the, the king has another reason for suppressing duels, which has been something the kings of France have been trying to do since the early 1300s, even the late 1200s, because they don't like their nobles killing each other. They need their nobles to lead military campaigns and to fight uh, uh, enemies like the English. So to have nobles constantly getting involved in their own duels and, and knocking each other over uh, and killing each other uh, is a problem. So the, the kings want to suppress it for their own reasons. So this judicial duel only happens when all other legal options are exhausted, right? That That's right. Do, do both sides have to agree to the duel in order for it to be a judicial duel? That's a, that's a good question. There's a very strict procedure that was followed, and it had been laid down for many decades. The, the document that was being followed in this case had been a, a, a royal edict of 1306 by uh, an earlier French king, and he had been actually, uh, this is Philip the Fair, was trying to suppress duels, but the nobility so loved the duel as a point of honor and part of their tradition that he couldn't quite get them to go along with this. And so he allowed the duel under certain strict conditions. And those are the strict conditions that are being followed now 80 years later in 1386 as this particular duel uh, or possibility of a duel moves forward. And so the first thing that Carouge did in following this was to go to Paris, probably got a lawyer immediately. There's a reference in the records to this particular lawyer, Juan Jean de Bethesy, uh, probably got his advice and made his appeal to the king, making his charges, that is to say, Jean de Carouge went to wherever the king was and in Paris or nearby and uh, made a formal statement of accusation against Jacques Legree, and this is known as the appeal. And once he's done that, he's sort of he's basically started the very slow mechanism of of the the legal machinery. The next thing that happens is that um, uh, Legree is summoned to Paris, and w the next formal event is the challenge, which takes place in early July, July 9th, I believe it is, of 1386, and in a very formal place. It's the old royal palace on the central island of Paris. And uh, lots of people are in attendance. The king is there. His uncles are there. Uh, lawyers for both men are there. And you also have a group of men around each of the, 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 the principles, Carouge and Legree, known as pledges. Each one has to have six pledges who essentially, cor essentially correspond to what become known as seconds in the later dueling ritual, where you have a second who prepares your pistol or... Uh, backs you up in case you're not able to fight or whatever. These pledges are all sworn to and compel the principles to the field of battle if, in fact, a duel should be authorized. And so what happens essentially is, is the number of people involved vastly multiplies, and you can see why the nobility would become very interested in this, especially as you read through the trial records and see that various men of the nobility were cycled in and out of these pledge spots and so quite a few very prominent families and figures are involved by the time this thing gets going. Um, now, after the challenge, in which you do have some semblance of the famous throwing down of the gauntlet and picking it up and an agreement basically to fight, the case is turned over to the Parliament of Paris, which is the King's Royal Council. And this, again, is a result of this 1306, this much earlier 1306 decree. Uh, the King doesn't really decide it. His Parliament does. 
even as the king officially presides over all of this. And so the parliament now, over the summer of 1386, goes into several months of deliberations over the case, collecting evidence, hearing accounts. Marguerite comes to Paris. She testifies. Her testimony is written down and summarized eventually in Latin, which is the version we still have uh, that still survives. And Legree's alibi is recorded, and witnesses are summoned, and uh, the trial record is, is fairly detailed and, and complicated, and we know a good deal about what happened over those two months because of the surviving records, which are detailed in the book. This duel becomes a huge event, so big that it is delayed just because the king can't make it, and he really wants to attend. <laughs> is that right? That's right. What happens is the parliament deliberates for two months, and they finally, in uh, September, issue a verdict saying that they can't decide, based on the evidence, which man is telling the truth. And so they authorize a duel. Now, prior to that point, as I mentioned, each man has a lawyer. And although we don't know much about Jean de Carouge's lawyer, we know quite a bit about the lawyer uh, retained or hired by Jacques Legree or his family or possibly even Count Pierre on his behalf. Uh, this was a very famous Paris lawyer named Jean Lecoq, who himself is the son of a, a lawyer. And there's quite a, it's quite a distinguished legal family. Uh, and Jean Lecoq has a lot of highly ranked client, clients. The, the king's brother, for instance, uh, Louis of Orléans, is one of his clients. One of the king's uncles is one of Jean Lecoq's clients. And so you can see him uh, sort of very prominent uh, in, in Parisian political circles. And it's he who then advises and, and, uh, and prepares the legal case for uh, Jacques Legree, and we have, because we have his personal notebook, he kept a notebook in Latin. It's one of the earliest surviving legal case books. We have some details of his conversations even with his client, sort of privileged attorney-client type details that are divulged in this notebook that we can read all of these centuries later. And what emerges from this is that Jean Lecoq appears not to have quite believed his own client. He had some suspicions about Jacques Legree that he lays out in the notebook and that are discussed in the book. And at the very end of his own summary of the case and his commentary on it, he says this remarkable thing. He says, no one really knew the truth of the matter. No one really knew the truth of the matter. And Jean Lecoq's statement to that effect perhaps helps us explain or understand why the parliament deadlocked and decided they couldn't decide the case on traditional evidential grounds, and in, and finally declared that duel and, you know, basically let God decide, let the two men fight it out. So that's what uh, results then on that, that with that parliamentary uh, decision of, of September 15 or so to let the, the duel go forward. And um, an additional factor in the parliament's decree is the fact that Marguerite is pregnant. And the law requires that any duel take place not fewer than 40 days after it's declared. So in other words, in any case where a duel is declared, the combatants have 40 days to get ready. But because of Marguerite's pregnancy, it's put off a little later until November 27, uh, two months, more than two months after uh, the decree, to ensure, no doubt, that her child is born so that if she is in jeopardy as a result of the duel, the child will not be in jeopardy because one of the very severe aspects of this case is that if Marguerite 
uh, if, if Jean de Cruz is defeated in the in the eventual duel, uh, then she will be deemed a false accuser, a liar, and she will suffer death as well in the case that her husband is killed on the field. And uh, a pretty horrible death. She will be, according to custom at the time, burned at the stake. So this case has put her in great jeopardy, even as she's in the final stages of this pregnancy that has to come to term before the duel can take place. King Charles's uh, wife is also pregnant at this time, right? That's right. Uh, young Isabel, whom he's married just a few years before, they're still teenagers, if you can believe this. The king and the queen at this point are still teenagers. Uh, the, she is pregnant uh, with her first child, and it seems that uh, her child and Marguerite's child are born very close to the same time. But in another another uh, sort of side bar to this all to all of this is that the king even as his wife is coming to term in her pregnancy is off in flanders at the seacoast with his uncles and a huge military entourage thousands and thousands who are preparing uh, an armada to sail across the north sea to attack england because remember the, the english and the french are still at war during this time and so he's up there and getting news bulletins from Paris about this case, because he's very eager to see this duel. And when he learns that the duel has been authorized by his parliament back in Paris, but also realizes that because of this, these invasion plans, he may not be back in time to, uh, to watch it, he sends letters to Paris uh, by courier ordering that the thing be delayed for more than a month and put off from November 27, the original date, to December 29th. Uh, which which is a big holiday uh, in France. It's the date of the martyrdom for St. Thomas Becket, who was you know, killed at uh, Canterbury centuries earlier. And uh, it's a big holiday. It's part of the French sort of Christmas New Year holiday period. And this, um, according to one uh, modern commentator, I think gets it exactly right. The the duel was to be the the clincher, the centerpiece of the French royal court's Christmas holiday. So yes, it is a very big deal. Am I correct in saying that they had some difficulty finding a venue for the duel? Um, there is no arena specifically for something like this? Well, yes and no. Uh, it is it is rare, and it's, it's something that um, they had to do quite a bit of preparation for. There are two pretty good venues in Paris at this time still, and they both are at monasteries, strangely enough. And this, again, reminds us of the religious significance of the duel, in addition to its military and its legal significance, and, of course, its, its function as a spectacle. Uh, and the place chosen is known as St. Martin in the Fields, or Saint-Martin-des-Champs, which was once literally out in the fields to the north of Paris, but it's since, by this time, enclosed by a great wall around the north of Paris and has its own monastic walls. And then within those, further wooden walls are built, uh, to to surround the field of battle, which is probably about 100 feet wide and 200 feet long or so, and so so somewhat elongated, a, a rectangle of, of smoothly raked sand where the two men can uh, face off, and then around that this sturdy wooden wall that is prevented built to prevent any escape or any interference from the outside, and then beyond that you have great stands or scaffolds built for the royal court and the various uncles. In fact, we know from records that 
the Duke of Burgundy, the king's oldest and most influential uncle, was uh, busy commissioning carpenters to build a very nice stand for him and his court to watch the duel from. So it's a big deal. It's it really is a, the centerpiece of this Christmas court for the uh, the French king, and uh, lots and lots of outlays in carpentry and other preparations to prepare this field. We will be back after a brief message. And we have returned. Much of my knowledge of medieval duels before I read your book came from the novel Ivanhoe. <laughs> <laughs> okay. uh, but, but these are how they typically went down, and please correct me if I'm wrong. Um, two men begin on horseback, they charge each other on horseback with lances, so the joust is first. And then when they're both dismounted, they finish their fight with swords or axes or whatever weapon they choose until a, a victor is determined. Is that a pretty good explanation of how these duels worked? They seem to have been uh, conducted in two main stages. That's right. Um, you have the horse, the, the phase on horseback, after which either they're unhorsed or they dismount, they deliberately dismount, and then carry on with swords. And, uh, I mean, and in some sense, the, the, shorter, the, the shorter the weapon, the closer they're fighting. The, 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 the horseback, uh, the, the mounted charge uh, involves lances, and so they're aiming these great lances at each other as they charge. But once they're unhorsed uh, or dismount, they fight with swords, a shorter weapon, and they're, of course, much closer to each other. Uh, there may have been some axe combat as well, as I describe in the book, uh, while they're on their horses. Uh, this was a fairly common thing. There were shorter axes designed specifically for use in the saddle, and we have some evidence uh, from details of this case, including even some uh, wall murals or, or tapestries. This case was so famous that it became a subject of art. Uh, no, most of the art has disappeared now. We have records of tapestries and wall paintings or murals that depicted this duel, and axes seem to have figured in it as well. But it would be basically from lance to sword to dagger, so that by the time the two men might be on the ground uh, fighting away and kind of wrestling, they would be using their shortest, but in some ways their most deadly weapons, daggers, in an effort to kill each other. So the duel between Carouge and Legree... Could you take us through it? Sure. So what happens is um, the, the, the two men are left on the field after they've sworn their oaths. There's a whole ceremonial prelude to the duel in which they, they actually ride onto the field with their entourage, and these are pages or squires who are there to help them arm. They sit in these great chairs that are set onto the field, uh, facing off across the field, at one point, they actually present, this is while they're still on horseback coming in, I believe, they present scrolls that have been prepared by their lawyers. Uh, they hold these up almost like weapons, uh, and that's a kind of symbolic representation of the fact that they have charged each other, charge and countercharge, with committing this rape, uh, as, as Carouge is accusing Legree, and, and Legree basically is accusing Carouge of lying about this and they present these scrolls as embodiments of their legal cases. Then they, they dismount, they sit on the thrones, they uh, are called forward uh, separately, but also eventually together to swear their oaths before priests. At one point, the two men actually lock their left hands, not their right hands, as you might with a regular 
friendly contract, but their left hands, the sinister hand, to indicate a hostile contract to fight each other to the death as priests look on and, and sanctify these oaths. And then the, the altars and the priests leave the field and, and uh, the thrones are removed or these great chairs are removed and the men are left uh, with their horses. Uh, they are assisted into the saddle in their heavy armor by their, their pages or squires. And at this point, they would have had with them at least one lance, probably two swords, a long and a short one, possibly an axe, as well as daggers. And um, the marshal of the field, who represents the king, steps forward between the two men who are at opposite ends of this long field, and he um, throws a glove into the air and uh, shouts, Laissez les aller. And soon after that, a, a moment or so after that, which means let them go, uh, and soon after that, um, he shouts, Fête vos devoirs, do your duty. And at that point, he leaves the field, the, the gates are slammed shut, and the two men on horseback with their lances at the ready face each other down the field, and that's when they charge and gallop toward each other. And um, we don't have a whole lot of detail about what happened exactly uh, during the, the, the passes with the lance between the two. And there's even one report that Legree refused to mount his horse and stood his ground, literally, as, as Carouge attacked him uh, on horseback. But at some point, the two men are unhorsed on the ground, uh, and they're fighting with their swords. And we have a pretty detailed, detailed account of this part of the fight in several chronicles. And um, it's clear that that Carouge is severely wounded at one point in the thigh, and Legree seems to have the advantage. Uh, and it, one of the chroniclers uh, reports that um, all of Carouge's supporters, his family, his friends, were in great fear for his life. But then Legree either slips on some blood that's already been spilled on the ground, or Carouge manages to throw him back and, and uh, to the ground. And then this fight turns into a kind of wrestling mash on the ground, and eventually Carouge is able to get the upper hand and poise his sword or his dagger, it's not quite clear, at, at Legree's throat. And despite the 60 pounds of armor that each is wearing and which covers much of their bodies, there are vulnerable points. And uh, Legree apparently is still protesting his innocence, and the Carouge is shouting at him, confess, confess, and Legree denies he's done it. And so Carouge thrusts his sword or his dagger home and kills Legree right on the field. And once Legree is dead, the victorious knight marches over to the king's stand and receives the king's blessing and approval and uh, honors that go with this and even money. Uh, uh, eventually, Carouge is rewarded uh, by the king. And uh, meanwhile, Legree's body is stripped of its armor and dragged off the field and out the city gate to this great hill where the stone gallows of Paris stands. And his body is is uh, hung from chains on this stone gallows to rot for the next several months as a sign of what happens to liars, rapists, traitors, and so forth. And Carouge, it's basically, you know, rises in the ranks, becomes the king's royal squire, and is really stepped onto a much larger stage than in earlier in his life as a result. Marguerite, uh, 
uh, is of course saved from a terrible fate, and the two, the two victorious, the victorious couple actually go to Notre Dame uh, Cathedral, uh, about a mile to the south of the field of battle, and there they give thanks to God. And there's a report that um, Carouge places on the altar at Notre Dame the armor of his slain enemy as a as a as a gift to God, as a as a sacrifice, as a uh, as a sign of gratitude. It's so interesting, isn't it, that they would exhaust all legal options, rules, laws, courts, and then when all else fails, let them have at it and give God the credit or the blame for the outcome. <laughs> the, the two don't seem to mesh very well, do they? <laughs> <laughs> this is one of the strange things about medieval society. You know, you look at something like judicial a judicial duel, and to all appearances, it's kind of it's kind of like World Federation wrestling or something. It's just like, wow. I mean, and they actually, there's a dead, you know, somebody dies at the end of this. And you, you just think of it, okay, it's blood sport, it's, it's extreme sport, it's a spectacle. But it really does have all these layers. It's a judicial process about testing an oath. And there are other, um, I mean, one of the things that happens as the duel disappears is that torture gets revived, because that's another way of extracting truth from bodies. The duel is its own way of extracting truth from human bodies by making those bodies fight. Uh, torture is another way, and it's you know uh, uh, not a very pleasant way, and it's sort of one of the negative consequences of, of the decline of the duel, um, that torture gets more or less revived. Um, but, okay, the duel has these multiple dimensions, and it's, it's legal, it's military, it's, it's religious, but it's also... A, cloud, a crowd pleaser. It's something people flock to. I don't think I mentioned this, but the implication from the, the records is that thousands of people would have witnessed this duel, and they would have had to do so in complete silence. There were very strict rules about the spectators. There's no shouting, no cheering on one man or another. You could lose an ear or a thumb if you interfered in any way with the outcome, including through shouting. So people were required to sit on the ground and keep quiet and to behave themselves very well during this whole thing. And so there's that whole dimension as well. Yeah, and it was quite the romantic display, wasn't it? Marguerite was, was certainly <laughs> thrilled that she wasn't going to be killed. There, there's a, it is. There's a wonderful passage in, in, uh, in Foissart, the, the main chronicler, about Marguerite at the field. There's a, for one thing, it's reported that just before the duel begins, she and Jean have a last word uh, with each other. And she says, uh, he actually formally asks her in the hearing of the whole crowd, Lady, on your evidence, I'm about to hazard my life in combat with Jacques Legree. You know whether my cause is just and true. And Marguerite is reported to have answered, My lord, it is so, and you can fight with confidence, for the cause is just. To which the knight simply replies, Let it be in God's hands. And those are the last words they, they speak. But Foisar also gives us this, this wonderful uh, vignette about how he, I'll have to sort of recall this from memory, but he basically says that sh the lady, you will understand, must have been in great, she was in great peril and a great fright as this duel was about to begin. And I don't know, he says, for I never spoke with her whether or not she now regretted having gone so far with the matter because the verdict of the court was that if her husband should lose uh, and die, she too would 
you know, sacrifice her life. Um, and that that moment where he says, I do not know, for I never spoke with her, you know, how we wish he had, and we would know something more about her. But you're right, it's, it's this in, amazingly romantic scene as well in which he fights for her and saves them both, and the family, because her son has been born by this time, and he could have, this child, this boy, Robert de Carouge is his name, could have been orphaned uh, as a result of that duel that day, but in fact, all three survive. And that's, in some ways, the beginning of another story, because Robert himself grows up to become a knight in his own right, and he will be fighting the English a couple of decades later when Henry V is invading France. Your account of the duel is, is just spectacular, and we don't have time to get into the details now. People can read it for themselves if they want to. It's pretty great. Sure. I do want to ask you one last question. Okay. I know I'm asking you to speculate. What do you think about this question of rape based on all of the accounts you've read? Do you think Legree raped Marguerite? I'm really glad you asked that because um, when I was doing the research for the book, which was over a number of number of years, and, and part and part of which was very reading very carefully the court records the surviving documents. Um, well, two things. First of all, reading things that had been written about this case over the centuries and little articles here in, in, in legal journals and in chronicles and so forth, the whole range of it, it became clear that most commentators, almost all of whom were men, by the way, very few women have, have written about this particular case and, and over the centuries at least, most of the commentators seemed to believe that Marguerite was mistaken. They held off from saying that she was lying but they seem to have, they, most of them think that it was a case of mistaken identity. And that's pretty much how this case was treated about, pretty much up to the time I wrote this book. There are uh, three possibilities, essentially. One is that she was lying and made the story up, as, as Count Pierre claimed. The other is that she was honestly mistaken and mistook Legree for another. And the third is that she was telling the truth. And two things uh, basically, I, I became very much aware that the, 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 the opinion was against her and thought that she'd made a mistake. But then as I read the records, I became, especially her testimony, I became convinced that she was telling the truth. And the appendix to the book talks a bit about why I came to this conclusion. But um, if I hadn't come to that conclusion, I probably would not have written the book. It was my sense that Marguerite was telling the truth and that she'd been given sort of a, uh, a she'd been misunderstood. She'd the, the, the evidence hadn't been read very carefully that a lot of these critics had come to the what I thought was the wrong answer. And I pretty much demolish, I think, in the appendix to the book, this theory of mistaken identity. I mean, I will admit, I mean, no one knows the truth, just as the lawyer said, and it's possible she was making this up. But I, I, I believe her, and you know, I decided that I thought she was telling the truth. Um, but I don't think anyone can take refuge in this, mis this theory of mistaken identity. I mean, I, that, that just doesn't work. And I think I show quite uh, clearly why it doesn't work, because it's an inconsistent, it's, itself incon it's, it's inconsistent with itself, the theory. It just doesn't fit the facts. Uh, so I remain, you know, very much one of those who believes uh, Marguerite's story. But there is a lot we don't know about this case, and, and people will inevitably make up their own minds. So this book is pretty much available everywhere books are sold, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, local bookstores. True. It's been a while since you've written this book, right? <laughs> <laughs> the 
about 15 years. It was published 15 years ago. <laughs> it's amazing you were able to, to recollect the details so clearly. I know you, you deal in medieval history and, and literature on a, on a regular basis, though. Do you have anything else in the works? Have you been working on any other books? Well, there is one book that came out about five years ago. It's called Blood Royal. And it, um, I think I mentioned briefly at one point in, in, this, in our discussion, this, um, the brother of the king, who was a client of uh, Jean Lecoq, Legree's lawyer, uh, the brother of the king named Louis of Orléans. Well, um, because of the internal disputes in the, in the royal house in France, he ends up murdered about, um, oh, this is about 20 years later. On one dark November night in 1407, a gang of men armed with axes and swords and clubs descends on him in a Paris street and just cuts him to pieces. And this is a huge crime, a very big mystery. It sets all of Paris on edge. The whole city is in a panic, and it has a lot of national and even international repercussions because the king by now is, is, is uh, mad for most of the year and uh, in and out of lucidity. And his brother, Louis, has been in charge of France. Well, when his brother Louis ends up dead, the question is, who's in charge of France now? And so uh, the story of Blood Royal is really the story of a mystery, a huge political uh, assassination, a very high-level political assassination, and the solving of the crime. And in this case, um, uh, I was able to tell that story because of a remarkable scroll that survives, a 30-foot parchment scroll that uh, is preserved at an archive in the south of France that records the day-to-day, almost hour-by-hour, even minute-to-minute investigative process undertaken by the the chief of law enforcement in Paris, a, a knight, a noble, uh, a diplomat, and head of the police named uh, Guillaume, who is in charge of this murder investigation and manages to solve it over the next week or so and reveal an even bigger mystery and danger uh, as a result, um, which is going to have future political repercussions uh, because of uh, what he discovers. But um, it's basically the story of a, a criminal case, its solution, and uh, one of history's first detectives, really, and that is Guillaume, the, the, uh, the lawman. Well, that sounds excellent. It's now officially on my list of things to read. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Again, I've been speaking to Eric Jagger about his book called The Last Duel, a true story of crime, scandal, and trial by combat in medieval France. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow.